Have we got a show for you today? Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I interview a guest all the way from Australia, Clint Adams, an extraordinary individual who is a former Victorian police officer who studied psychology and later rehabilitation counseling. After working as a police officer, a counselor, a senior human resources manager, and working with asylum seekers in Australia, Clint decided to develop various behavioral and leadership programs to help people deal with various issues from post-traumatic stress disorder to bullying and harassment. He has been a keynote speaker on suicide prevention and diversity and runs programs on mental health and well-being for corporate organizations, sports teams, and schools. Clint Adams is the author of a book called Lighting the Blue Flame, which deals with the issue of suicide and gives a lot of education to the readers. I really think you're going to enjoy today's episode from our international guest, Clint Adams. And right before we jump into the interview, if you are interested in subscribing, I urge you to subscribe to stay informed about issues on psychology and philosophy and the culture. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast, and if you have, please share it with people you know. All right, now for the interview. Welcome, Clint Adams, to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. So good to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Very, very happy to be here. Yes, I'm very excited. Uh, You are my first guest from around the other side of the world in Australia, and uh, I've done a few people from Europe, but never Australia. So I'm excited to, to have you on. I really hope uh, our listeners will uh, dig into all the great things you've got to say. And I know you've got a lot of materials out there on the on the internet. So um, I'm very excited to ask you so many questions. So uh, sure. first of all, I, I want to just dig in a little bit here. You've got quite the background. I know right now you've been doing some program development in education and you have your new book out, but can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the field of psychology? Yeah, look, as a as a student coming up through high school, um, I was very interested back in my day, I'll probably show my age here, but um, in my day, Silence of the Lambs and that kind of stuff was, was pretty big. Um, it was a lot of forensic psych and I was very interested in the whole uh, serial killer kind of Mm -hmm. uh, environment and and the things that came with that. And so I I got kind of not sucked in, but I I got drawn to to doing psychology. Back then they didn't have forensic psychology as an actual subject and and, and you had to kind of do the whole normal psych degree. So I kind of put my my foot in both places. I I did pharmacology and so I did a science degree in pharmaco and also in um, psychology with the view of either going into forensics or later going into, you know, counselling, but more like that psychiatry medicine component of it, which is where the pharmaco stuff kind of came in. Um, At the time, I also then joined the Victoria Police Force. So Victoria is a state here in, in Australia. And our police forces work very different to to America and and, um, and other areas in the sense that it's all run by the state and it's very consistent. We all go to the same academy. We all kind of do it in each state. Each state has their own, mind you, but uh, effectively it's all run by the state. So at that stage, um, the forensic units or the psych units of the police were run internally. Um, and I joined with the view of trying to get into that and you had to become a senior constable, so pretty much do three or four years minimum before you could kind of progress. So that was my intent when I, um, like to say, the road of, you know, to hell is 
filled with good intentions. Um, so I won't bore you with the details, but it didn't quite happen that way. They kind of privatised it while I was in the police. And so I had to look at other ways of trying to get there. Either I had to leave the police force, go and work as a psychologist, become a true psychologist, and then try and get in or do something else. So I chose to do something else. I was very interested in the counselling side of, of psych, uh, you know, dealing one-on-one, PTSD, the classic version of what you would think a counsellor would do. So I did that. I left the police. I worked for a private company. And as luck would have it, the private company was doing a lot of work for the police. The police used to outsource all that stuff back then. And so because I was an ex-cop, other cops felt more comfortable talking to me about, you know, the issues that they're dealing with, having kind of, you know, dealt with it myself and, and that kind of stuff. And so I was getting a hell of a lot of work from the police um, in a nutshell, they eventually uh, approached me and said, look, you know, we're paying a hell of a lot of money to the company you work for. How about you come and work for us and, and kind of not head it up, but it was part of a, of a new group that was actually doing it internally for the police. So I, I took that up, um, went and worked back with the police now as an unsworn person doing uh, injury management, psychs. I'm dealing with people who are police that have had, you know, issues, PTSD, other issues, physical injuries, and then trying to help them through rehabilitation. So I basically became a counsellor for the police um, for, for a period there. That gave me a lot of insight around the psych stuff. I was studying as well. I did a, an actual um, post-grad diploma in, in rehabilitation counselling uh, through that period as well. So I kind of know help my skills along but but I found that some of that was a little bit inadequate for what I liked I liked the idea that um I didn't feel I was right to be a good counselor yet even though I'd finished the the actual degree and um so I I really kind of really explored a lot more was reading a lot more about the subject because I kind of wanted to to be better and and understand more and I really got into the neuroscience side more like the neuroplasticity there's a lot more talk about it now but back then it was really hard to find some of that stuff so you know, I was going through university journals because I, I had been a student there. I could access a lot of the library and stuff. And so I was looking into what was working out there. And so a lot of the, the work that I've been doing since has really kind of had a foundation there. So over the years, I um, I got into more working for private companies in, in um, more of a HR slash change management kind of role where I've, I've worked with, you know, helping people develop as leaders, helping people develop in general and, and then just normal HR kind of stuff. But then that also in the last few years, you know, prior, prior to a lot of companies doing it, we I started developing health and wellbeing um, programs for my own teams and the organisations I worked with because ultimately if, if you've got people who are highly resilient who are uh, got better mental health, they're more likely to be better leaders and obviously more productive and, and more fun to be around and all those good things that come out of those things. So, you know, if, if I go back, I, I started doing that um, for a company when I was working in the steel industry. They were a little bit more forward-thinking, but they were also um, help. I was helping them develop these programs, and that's where a kind of red brain, blue brain came out of it as a training program I've developed over the years. And it has changed, and sometimes I also change it for the audience depending on, you know, their, I guess, their education level and and all the other things that come with that. Because some of it's very. Um, I don't like to go to too much of the psych stuff. It's about them understanding what's practical. And I like to make my programs practical. There's a lot of great things out there that are written by academics, but academics aren't the most social people. So some of those things kind of get missed. And so I kind of see myself as the person that brings the two together. Like I have to read a lot of stuff 
to kind of make, go, okay, that I understand on an intellectual level how that works, but how do I make it practical for Joe Blow on the shop floor or or people out in the, the community who just, you know, the average Joe kind of stuff. And so that's kind of where, where a lot of my stuff has come from over the years. So that's probably the nutshell of of me. <laughs> Well, that's I love that uh, you've shared your bio with us uh, here because in your background, because I think it shows how you grew and your knowledge base grew. And then and then slowly that just led to uh, different different jobs and different professions, but all in the same realm of helping people. (laughs) And uh, but now I, I think that's really interesting. I like when psychologists and counselors move from doing the work once they've kind of got a degree of mastery of it to uh, how can we, well, instead of just somebody coming into my office and we work on their goals, how do we work with this on a larger organizational level and help uh, a larger group of people at once? And I think that's really, uh, really admirable and uh, interesting that you're, you're doing that. And I actually would love to know uh, about, uh, I'm going to ask about your book later, but I would love to know about some of these programs, maybe just a, a little overview of, of one of your favorite programs that you've developed and, um, and how you implement it. Because there is a large, I, I think there's, there is a, di- a big academic uh, gap. Uh, you know, I go to a lot of psychology conferences and we talk shop all the time. <laughs> and it's like, yep. even in that level, you have a lot of counselors and therapists who only go to the continuing education at the most basic level they have to do to maintain their licensure and their job, and they aren't even going to this advanced stuff. And so then, yeah. you know, we got to bring this stuff, all this really cool neuroscience and all these things we're learning. We have to not only translate that into our profession, but we've got to be able to help. We got to actually apply this stuff, or else it's it's just a bunch of interesting information, you know. So so can you tell me about one of your programs and how you did that? Yeah, look, I, I, I think it's I'll, – I'll cover something quickly just because I'm on, on the same page with, with what you're saying. I think my um, – w- when I was doing work as a counsellor, you realise that you're only dealing one-on-one. And so you, you can impact on only so many people, as you know, you know, that that's kind of sometimes taxing depending on how – but you might see at best three or four people in a day. Let's say worst like – best-case scenario, you see 300 people in a year. So – you know, as I kind of went through my career, um, there was a point where I was working for a healthcare company. Um, and when I say healthcare, we ran hospitals and community little hospitals all in a, in a big kind of area in Victoria. And as an executive member of, of um, working with the board, I, I got to see a lot of statistics of what, you know, um, I guess stuff we, we were doing as as a company and an organisation. And, and I, I, you know, I was alarmed by how young people were on antidepressants, how many kids were being um, treated for, you know, from suicide issues or they were suicidal or they tried it and now they were being treated from a psych perspective. And, and that kind of made me start to think about how could I have, um, I guess, a, a bigger impact and, and and so that that did get me thinking about a school program. So if I, now I'm coming to your question, I, I started to think, well, what can I do? As a cop, you go into houses and you see kids who are disadvantaged. You've got parents who are absolute no-hopers. You go, wow, this poor kid or kids um, are, are going to have a hell of a time not ending up like their parents. And so you, 
you know, you, you kind of feel sad for them, but you also got to go, well, you know, they, they're going to grow up. They're little now. What can we do as a community? What can we do at school level? So those kinds of things all factored into me developing this school program at the time. So I started doing the school program, thinking about my psych background around how I used to get, you know, people who were stuck to change whatever was keeping them stuck and how they could develop better habits of, of their own thinking and be quite deliberate about change. So I used that kind of knowledge to, to, to develop the school program. And the school program kind of evolved around me focusing on, well, you know, when, when you've got a young kid who's coming into school, they don't know any different. Okay, they might have parents who aren't great role models and all that kind of stuff, but what are those key skills that we can use where they can kind of change their habits? There's a lot of information, as you put it out there, about like, um, you know, the, the marshmallow kind of stuff uh, that you would have heard about. You know, the, these people have, who are able to, you know, not do certain things in that moment and then years later they're suddenly, you know, way ahead of all the other ones who, who took the marshmallow and didn't hang on for the second one. So there's all these kind of little things along the way that go, these all add to you being more resilient, you being better in life. And so there's a number of other, um, you know, instances and, and, and information on this stuff around you know, experiments that have been done. So I kind of use a lot of that kind of stuff and say, well, how does this apply? How can we, instead of having risk factors for these kids, how can we take some of them away and add some resilient factors or success factors, if you want to put that term to it, along the way for these kids who are not just the disadvantaged, but all kids and kind of build the resilience. So that's kind of where my program started. And and Red Brain, Blue Brain is a spin-off of that. I've done... Um, so for me, it's about educating people in the first instance. Do you know how you think? Do you understand how, you know, you're when you're a baby, you're taking things in so passively and, you know, you develop an undercurrent. And if you've got trauma and stuff happening around you, that has an effect on your undercurrent, which ended up being your personality and you kind of develop. But you don't necessarily think about how you've come to be Clint Adams 10 years later, 20 years later, whatever. So part of, you know, the program has always been about, helping especially at the adult level you know because they can kind of take this information in with with the kids program it's a little bit different because it's more about educating the teachers on why they're doing these things why they're taking these kids through um certain initiatives like one of the things i'm really big on is having kids all talking and having good dialogue where um they don't feel it's creating um safety to have any conversation this is why mental health stigma is an issue because people feel scared about coming out so there's when there's a safety issue people won't talk about stuff so if I feel like someone's going to belittle me or they're going to call me names or that I'm going to be treated differently I won't say anything and so part of you know the program for from a teacher's perspective is how they can understand why we're doing this for the kids so one we're getting kids to talk about it early it's kind of a structured conversation all the kids sit around in a room say and that needs to be 15 or 20 minutes, but it's about calibration of behaviours that kids aren't happy with. So if someone's pulling someone's hair or being bullied at the age of six or seven, we start to have conversations. But you're also bringing the whole group in because the group has a lot of people will see people being bullied and they just go, wow, I'm glad it's not me. So they all stay silent. But if we actually facilitated conversations where, one, they're having those conversations, two, they're calibrating the behaviour they don't like, but it also makes the other people in the room feel a bit more courageous because when people go first and have a conversation that they wouldn't normally have, amazingly more people have it. You know, you see these big cases of 
the wine, uh, the Weinsteins of the world where one woman comes forward and then suddenly there's a whole heap of others and now feel, oh, someone else has gone first. It's not just me in the spotlight. And then, you know, so someone has to go first. And what we're trying to do at a school level is not make it a big thing. It's about starting really, really small, helping them feel more comfortable. And this comes back to the marshmallow study where we're, we're trying to just give them better habits and give them a bit of that courage, get them more comfortable talking about it. Because I find it like at, at work level, I find, you know, you've got adults, 50, 60-year-old men working in steel industries and meat industries and all that kind of stuff, too scared to have a conversation with somebody who's treating them like crap. And so, you know, part of the, the leadership development, and I use red brain, blue brain at, at work level, is doing exactly the same thing. I only now got to change their whole 50 years of history of feeling this way and not feeling comfortable to have a conversation. Like I've had people crying who don't want to give other people feedback in their group for things that irritate them. Um, so, you know, it, it follows through. If you don't kind of learn those skills early on, um, you, you, it just carries through and it has an effect on your life. People who are highly anxious are people who are sometimes people pleasers. They do everything. They're great people to be around, but they hate themselves for it because they get treated like a doormat kind of thing and everyone just loads them up with work and, and I have that kind of stuff to deal with too. So those early day things become such a big pattern along the way and it also affects people. So they go home and they go, oh, you know, I just get all the crap jobs. Everyone treats me like crap. I'm the people please. Everyone likes me, but I don't feel good about myself because I know I, I can't say no. You know, I've had a, a conversation with a person recently where they go, I can't say no. I just, it, it's not in my DNA to do that. So they take it on and then they hate themselves for it. So it's, you know, uh, I kind of work with them in that space too. But if I go back to the kid stuff, that's that whole program of helping the kids to get past that, be okay to go, hang on, I don't like the way you're treating me or no, I'm not going to do that. I can only do so many things. And so, you know, you're kind of setting them up for, for better life skills in the future. But then again, it all has such an effect on your, on, on your psychology and, and how you become as a person. Yes. Um, Clint, you have such a great uh, breadth of knowledge and uh, it's very good to hear all of these. I, I feel like you're teaching little mini psychology lessons in just telling the story <laughs> about your your program. And it's so true. Uh, you know, it's something I think that would be behoove all schools around the world to to have a uh, communication and boundaries and psychology, like a Psych 101 type course, but not Psych 101 <laughs> about the rats and, and Pavlov's yes. dog and Freud's and uh, Jung's battles. I mean, Psych 101 about how does our brain work and how does that translate to the body and how does that translate to your behaviors and how does that translate to your personality? I've been saying that for a while, but it sounds like you're already putting it into <laughs> practice there in Victoria. And um, because I think people feel, like you said, they feel stuck, they feel trapped because they don't, they don't even understand. We don't even have to go to psychotherapy. If we learn about how the mind and the body works and how we can learn to have communication and, uh, skills and learn to have boundaries and be able to be assertive instead of aggressive or passive. If we learn these things, which are basic, uh, I don't know, basic parts of being a human, I suppose, we are able to get our needs met a little bit better. We're able to speak up for ourselves. We're able to have better life satisfaction and better meaning. And and people are, um, if anything, they're, they need meaning to survive. They don't need food. You, know, you can go without food for a while, go without water for not too long, 
but you definitely can't go without meaning. So people, if people without meaning, it doesn't matter your position. If you don't have the meaning or a spark to move on and you feel stuck and trapped, that's where uh, suicide, that's where uh, uh, abusing substances or abusing other people or violence comes into play because it feels like the only mm-hmm. option. And so um, yep. I think that it's so interesting to, to try to simplify uh, the, the sauce to be able to bring it into the everyday world where people aren't all about psychology and interested in it like we are. That is such a valuable yeah. and needed skill in our world to be able to translate it. And not because, you know, of any other reason, but we need to get the message out there that there is, there is hope for people wherever they are and uh, to change whatever behavior or change your work situation or, uh, you know, like you said, like a, a person who's just doing things because they feel like they can't say no. Well, that's an impulse. And where'd that impulse come from? And uh, it, it's uh, it's different than the marshmallow study, but I'm sure their their background has <laughs> to do with it. So uh, I, speaking of stock and, and not having hope, I, I think I, I wanted to dip a little bit into you talk a lot about um, suicide prevention, I believe, uh, based on, uh, and the diversity programs. Uh, and you wrote a book about, uh, it's called lighting the blue flame. Um, and it's, it's a, I guess, uh, a fiction book, I guess, but it's a story about bullying and suicide. Is that, is that right? Correct. Look, the book's fictitious in terms of the characters, but there's definitely, um, a lot of the information based on what I wrote about the characters, how they're feeling at the time. I've spoken to people who have been suicidal. I've spoken to people who have lost children um, through suicide and also had, um, you know, spoken to people who have have the loss, deal with the grief. So there's a, there's a large combination of, of those things. I've also spoken to people who have been bullies themselves and then, had you know, kind of spoke about, why they did that like we don't always when we think about bullying we always think about the victim and how badly they've been treated but a large proportion and i obviously don't know their full stats because you know a lot of people don't talk about it but um a lot of people that have been bullies that's their way of of feeling more powerful because something's happened to them or they've been treated badly at home or they've been bullied themselves and so they only know that way, whether it's a violent way or, or just being nasty way, that's kind of what they know. So it's how they enact that. I mean, you look at, you know, the the the, the looting and all the stuff that kind of happened in America with, with people just being angry about the Black Lives Matter stuff, a lot of that anger isn't directed necessarily at anything. It's just I'm angry because we've been treated badly or for years or, or feel disadvantaged or, or whatever. And so you see that as a symptom rather than what's actually the cause of it. And so, you know, it's no different with, with the bullying and, and how people react. And so, yeah, the, the book essentially is written around a story of, of a young boy who decides he's going to kill himself because he's been bullied to the point of, you know, he, he doesn't see another way out. But ultimately he wants to um, send a message out to the bully, send a message out to the people that watched it and encouraged it and laughed at him but didn't really act bully him and then also wanted to send messages out to the school about what they did or didn't do and look schools can be it can be a tough caper around how you actually deal with those things so um that's kind of how the book was and then my school program I dragged myself into the book as a character I'm actually helping the school with leadership stuff when this this uh, young boy decides he's going to take his own life and then 
I'm then asked, can I, well, actually the boy drags me in knowing that I'm working with the school and, and that I've done this kind of stuff in the past and wants to see some change within the school after he passes. So that so then I use those kind of school, pro, I drag the school program into the book, talking to the principal, talking to the parent who's obviously found the, their son, um, how they deal with the trauma, I'm helping the school did, and, and I'm helping the bully because the bully's now going, holy crap, this kid has killed himself, I'm responsible how do I deal with that? Then there's also, you know, his parents also concerned that now he's going to be a target. Is he going to get charged with some kind of uh, crime? And and so there's a lot of other factors to. And I wanted to kind of illustrate that how it impacts that, you know, people's behaviour impacts on others and that kind of stuff. And so then I go into the whole what I described before around helping kids talk about things earlier on. Um, it's a lot easier to do for primary school kids because they don't know any different. Obviously, if you come to high school where people know each other, they're worried about what brands they're wearing, they treat people, you know, all that stuff become bigger things. And if you deal with it a lot earlier and kids have kind of got used to talking about it, it's like, hey, we don't care what you're wearing, you're a good person, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, we kind of, you're developing the kids as they say, so when they get to high school, they're kind of already there and they feel more comfortable in their own skin to talk about some things. And if someone's being treated badly, they don't just stand, be, be bad bystander effect stuff. They really get involved and say, hang on, that's not appropriate that you're treating that person like that. And and, and so it's a, it's kind of building that robustness and resilience. And, and, and to your point about you know, um, if you think of the old um, Maslow's hierarchy of need stuff, this is about them feeling more comfortable. At an earlier age, some people find this stuff a lot later. Um, I guess part of this is about us developing that very early, like as early as we can so people start to think about those things. And and so for me, that that's also been quite a big factor in, um, I guess, the, the, the information I do, I kind of bring forward in, in, the, um, in the programs. Yeah, it's, I, I I very much enjoy that. The um, I think that that is a very key, important element. If I can go macro for a minute, in creating a healthy society, is uh, emotional health is paramount. Um, people, you know, physical health is paramount, but if your emotional health is off, your physical health is going to be off. And if your physical health is off, then your emotional health is off. But that's a whole nother whole nother podcast. So, but, uh, uh, emotionally, emotional health is important because at a young age, if you're empowering these kids to essentially be able to solve disputes, know when to go to the authority figures, know how to talk about things and, and, and being able to instill some values, some community values of what really matters, which is who you are as a person, right. Instead Mm -hmm. of, uh, the money or, you know, what you look like or whatever, at least bring in those base values in, um, that can help with healthy emotional development as they grow older, because otherwise, and I think I've, I've said this before, if we aren't educating them, the media and the, the sort of status quo of whoever is at your school and whatever their parents believe or whatever they think will be educating them. So uh, yes. they are being educated constantly, emotionally, by uh, media they consume, what they observe in society, what their parents are doing. So if we don't show them that there are healthy emotional ways to grow and give them that as an option, you know, as an option, it's not a, it's not a forced thing, but it's an educational thing, and we believe it helps with the, the lifespan development, um, then they will 
not be able to police themselves, not be able to solve their own disputes, have great emotional problems. Everyone will have emotional problems at some point, but uh, we all have a crisis point. But what you're talking about is, is prevention. And the more we the more we educate and empower people, the the better uh, the fabric of our society can be underlying. Um, and we you know we it's it's a it's a noble cause, very difficult one because uh, we also want to you know give people autonomy to make their own choices. But that's how as a society we have to agree. You know that's when child protective services becomes when do we call them? You know when do we call the yeah. you're a police officer? When do you call the police? When is it <laughs> when does it cross that line? That's a thing that society is always debating uh, between personal autonomy and what is good for the greater community. And I do think that um, that I, I I love that you're going to the early education because that's right where it starts. And I think I, I went to multiple different schools when I was growing up, and I remember um, the last school I went to uh, before I graduated um, high school or whatever you want to call it before university, uh, essentially the people in that community, I don't know if it was just luck or whatever, but the, the, it was a bit more emotionally healthy than a few of the other schools I had gone to. And I, and I noticed that awesome. because I was brought right in and fr- made friends and, and there was bullies and there was problems like every school, but essentially m- my classmates mostly got along, which is very rare. I hear these days, uh, you know, the, the sports players <laughs> yeah. hung out with the music players and the, and the, and the, the quote unquote, the nerds, all these clicks interacted where I hear nowadays, at least in the U S I'm hearing uh, anecdotal reports that the, the groups are like kind of parting They're they're more insular in their own little pods. So I, I find that I do find that concerning. And I think we we'll unfortunately see the results of that if that continues, but it sounds like what you're trying to do is let's have dialogue. Let's have this communication. Let's learn about the behaviors and thinking. And I think that's, that's great. I hope that, uh, Hope that more places in Australia are adopting <laughs> that than just the schools you're working with. Is this is this a local thing or is this national? In, in um, well, I was intended to do more last year, but obviously with COVID, uh, I had some things lined up and 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 they didn't go ahead because you couldn't get in the classrooms with the kids. So I'm hoping this year will be a different kettle of fish. Although we've got a few more cases coming through now, even in Australia, so we've got semi lockdown, not quite as bad as other countries, but. Uh, hopefully, if we can get through that, I'll be able to get to, to more schools and, and really run those things. But you hit the nail on the head. One of the things I run, um, I was supposed to do a, a talk with a, a football team here in Australia, quite quite a large one, three or four hundred kids, um, and they had some suicides early early in the year last year. And so the president of the of the uh, of the organisation um, asked me to come and do um, a talk, and he said I'll come and talk to the kids. But I said, well, I really want the 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 parents there because they are such a key in terms of because one of the questions they always ask me when they talk about suicide prevention is how do you know when someone is struggling? And and there's a number of things you can obviously look for, but essentially I go the other way. I say people know when they're struggling. And the biggest point is why aren't they talking about it? We need to go to that point. So if you're a child and you're not talking to your parents, and we've had numerous examples of this where the parents go, I had no idea my son was struggling and now he's gone and done something that's so final um, and, you know, why didn't he come and talk? And then all these questions come up. So one of the key things I, I really focus on for parents is, for them, like I said before, if there's a little bit of a safety issue in me having a conversation about something, so mental health in this instance, um, I won't say it. I go into silence. So um, 
as a parent, you've got to, you know, understand, like you mentioned, you know, we've got to do more for our kids. But what I find is that, and I say this to a lot of the people at work when I'm running stuff for the adults, is that some of you are unconsciously incompetent when it comes to your own mental health. How are you going to actually help your kids to become competent? So if, if, if I don't understand myself, I'm blissfully unaware so I don't go and find out about more about it. So when I actually bring this to those people in, in these sessions, a lot of them go, wow, I had no idea I think this way. And so they'll even invite me to go and talk to the kids at home in, in, from a work environment. They go, my daughter's struggling with this. You can articulate this way better than I can. So part of this whole process for me is about trying to go, well, clearly it's hitting a mark when I'm having these conversations with the people. It's also then making them go, holy crap, I am unconsciously incompetent. Now I'm actually consciously incompetent and I need to kind of find some stuff, right? So, you know, it's about me introducing them to stuff. You mentioned various theories of psychology. I'm not aligned to any particular one because I've seen that a lot of them or most of them or some things aren't even psych stuff. Like, you know, some people find religion and they get out of a bad patch because that works for them. But what I have found is the common thread is they change their focus from that amygdala-driven, I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel whatever, to I've got to come up with a solution. This isn't working for me. This is helping. And then then the, the focus is such a key. And so all the way through I see that pattern. And so when I'm running any programs, it's around how do I get them to go, holy crap, I want to do this or I want to find out more or, and then they go and explore. And so that's kind of the key for all of the stuff. Like in my book, I've got a lot of QR codes through the book that links to more information about stuff. I don't want to bore people with, they don't want to know about neuropeptides and all that kind of stuff. But if they want to go and read, here's the books. I'll I'll link it to that. I'll link it to TED Talks. I'll link it to, I'm not the subject matter expert on all this, but I am pulling a lot of the stuff together because I do have a wide range of of knowledge and and I've built that up over many years. You know, I'm nearly 50 this year. So, um, and I've also been inquisitive all through my journey. So for me, I guess I'm kind of like, I read a lot of stuff that's not that useful and you go, oh, well, that's just bad luck. I've got maybe one or two things out of a book, but you know, then there's other books that are amazing. You know, Joe Dispenza's You Are the Placebo and those kinds of things are just amazing books. If anyone wants to read anything about neuroplasticity, there's a book for you. Um, so, you know, I refer to those things through the book because for me it's about getting people to want to go and find out more. We, we can't tell everybody how to do everything, but if they start to get inquisitive about it and they go, wow, I don't want to be unconsciously incompetent or, or remain consciously incompetent. I want to do more. I want to help my kids, you know, and so – when I'm talking to, to parents, even little things around, well, are you one of those parents that say to your kid, you know, I oh, suck it up, princess, you know, because it's a boy and, you know, boys don't cry and all those things. They all have an impact on what the kid thinks and then they go, oh, dad's going to have a go at me again, so I'm not going to tell him that I'm struggling or I'm upset because, you know, someone called me something or they stole my lunch money or I got beaten up, you know, and so there's the whole man or you've got to be a man kind of stuff that still hangs around probably from, you know, earlier generations has always been that, you know, you've got to, you're that man of the house and all this stuff. And, you know, there's, there's a whole different conversation when it comes to masculinity and, and, and manhood and all that stuff. Um, but essentially it's about parents understanding to, to at least create safety for the kids to come and talk to them saying, no matter whatever happens, you can come and talk to me about anything. And they've got to have that conversation. I don't think we do it deliberately enough as a parent where you go, hmm, what do I want to teach my kids? You know, like it's almost a lesson plan for your kids early on about 
what would I want them to learn? You know, there's classic skills like how to cook and all that stuff, but where does the mental health side come into it? We don't tend to do that very well or we just don't know about it enough. So that's kind of where, where that all sits. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely on that. And uh, I'm glad, yeah, I, I find myself uh, aligned with you in many ways because I also, I'm not a subject matter expert really on much, except I've studied trauma for 12 years. But besides that, even that, I, I'm still learning every day. I don't consider myself an expert. I'm just pulling this information. I'm trying to give people information because I feel like, I you know, not to be cliche, but knowledge is power, but I believe that. And I think that it is huge that the family, that's a, that's one of the one of my pet peeves is when we have children going to the doctor in isolation of the family to get medications for for anger or or depression or or we have or even in my own counseling clinic when I when I work with my therapist I say please get the parents in for a few sessions here and there get the parent in get them in for family therapy do it and I say oh the parent doesn't want to come in they want me to fix their kid and I said well that's the whole problem because that's not going to work because you're not the parent <laughs> it's only one hour yeah. a week you see this kid they're only yeah. gonna they're gonna change at their own pace they're gonna change when they want to. The parent has the biggest influence over that child because they are around that child all the time and they're constantly teaching the child whether you said whether they're conscious or whether they're not conscious of it. And so um, I think that family education and parents, um, you know, parents want to know tricks to get their kids to do stuff. And there isn't a trick, but you can develop skills and you can develop skills early on and you can or you can develop skills later. But if you develop skills early on, you'll be a lot happier and a lot a lot less uh, money and time uh, spent on trying to get your child to comply because uh, they won't comply. They, they, you have to, you have to, we have to give the child the meaning. They, they have to find their own meaning, but we can guide them instead of tell them or, you know, harass them or threaten them. So, uh, or nag them or whatever you want to call it. So, <laughs> and, and I, it is true that the, the idea of psychology is so vast and broad and it's, I love that you're drawn on the neuroscience because I love the neuroscience, but you're right. How do we translate the neuroscience? Uh, there is a lot of books, like you said, that book, I haven't read that book yet, but um, I like Dr. Dan Siegel's work, the Interpersonal Guide to Neurobiology and all the neurobiology books he's been putting out through Norton. Um, they're so complicated. But when I learn something from those books, I'm like, oh my gosh. And then how do I, how do I translate that? It is about focus. What are we focusing on? I say to my teenager clients and my young adult clients, I say, uh, every day you have an opportunity, if your life's an art gallery, to curate your own life. What do you want to do in this life? You know, exactly. you, you, do, you might have to go to school or you might have to go to work because there's some obligations in there, but the rest of the time, you get some choices. Now, if you're sitting here with your phone glued to your face, clicking through whatever random algorithm has decided that you should see the new... Uh, here's, here's something that flooded my today. I was online and I was checking my email and up in one of the boxes, uh, in an, another webpage, it said new Burger King logo. I don't need to know about a new Burger King logo. <laughs> I don't care. I don't even eat at Burger King. I don't think I've eaten there in 15 years. <laughs> and so these sort of, you get this information you don't even need, right. Or yeah. that was passive or I'm actively on the social media or reading things without context. And that is curating my life. Now my thoughts are all about whatever, you know, weird thing happens somewhere else to somebody else <clears throat> or accomplishment that occurred. That is somebody's opinion about it. So I think <clears throat> I'm not against social media at all. I think it could be very useful. I think it's just about 
how do we teach people how to use it in a way that's useful instead of sort of um mindless or like uh yeah. you know it's like snacks i like snacks you like snacks but if we sit here all day and eat snacks we're not yeah, gonna like healthy our, we're not gonna <laughs> like our health outcomes anyway yeah no 100 percent. and it's funny you mentioned you know using the neuroscience and then and, and bringing it to practical one of the key insights for me so have you heard of human synergistics no i've not so human synergist human synergistics is a company that uh they use uh, it's a 360-degree tool they use, and it's based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but I won't go bore you with details. They they do a massive amount all around the world, mainly for managers. It's more, more of a, a work tool. So they look at this profile, and in a nutshell, you have kind of three areas. One's red, one's green, one's blue. But when, when, when you get the results back, and, and so you do one for yourself, you do what the people that work with you, the full 360 do with them as well, and what, what it shows is that the managers that are either highly aggressive or highly timid, so, again, the fight or flight, when fight or flight dominates, they're in the lowest 10% around the world. And so, again, you see the common fear and anger go together. If that dominates the person as a manager, their health, their health outcomes are like 86% worse their effectiveness as a manager and as a person is like 75% worse. So, you know, those common themes throw, flow through and I see the same results when I, I go back to, you know, if, if people become timid as a young person for whatever reason, they become sad, uh, sorry, shy and they don't kind of interact for whatever reason, then that has an impact and they end up being employees who are those people pleasers, who are... I can't say no. I've just got to, people have got to like me. It becomes almost manic for them in the sense that I can't do anything that's going to make people not like me. So I'll just do whatever it is, even though it's to the detriment of my health. So in my private thoughts, I hate myself. I feel horrible about it. I'm highly anxious about what could happen in the future. And so those kind of things still go on. If you go the other side where you've got a highly aggressive person who, you know, the only way that they've learned whether they've had parents that have been, you know, kind of angry and and, and kind of, you know, hit them and violent and all that kind of stuff, and they have that tendency. They're the ones that become the bullies. They're the ones that also, you know, sometimes those people do progress. They get seen at work, you know, they're highly aggressive and they're, they're competitive and all those things, which are kind of positive at a certain level. But if you're at the extreme end, it becomes a problem because, People, they don't have good relationships. People kind of shy away from them at work. They go, oh, I don't want to work with this guy. So they have turnover. And so you see all these patterns. But at the same time, their health is also, because they've got that constant anger, that constant type A from years ago, you know, when we talked about the classic type A person, that's the ones that get the heart attacks and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So the same themes, again, go through. So, again, if we go right back to that, how can we use neuroscience to to help people it's about understanding how your habits are forming so if you stay in that space and you don't do good self-talk and people aren't calibrating with you early on because you're highly aggressive so people don't want to talk to you because you go oh god he's always you know angry so no one no one gives you feedback because they're too scared to give you feedback because you just bite their head off every time we have a conversation right so that pattern just keeps emerging so again using 
what's happening in the neuropsych. So the, the person that's highly aggressive, you know, the amygdala goes off, they get angry, they get that whole burst of energy, the blood drains from their brain into their muscles, all that stuff that happens. So using neuroscience, I, I kind of really focus on people understanding that when someone else is in what I call red brain, so going into that amygdala state, it's around asking them questions. This is the point about as a parent, when you ask someone a question that they have to answer, the amygdala can't answer it. So they have to use the old frontal cortex. So you need blood pumping back up there to help you, you know, have those conversations. When I was dealing with the police, we used to do tactical disengagement pieces around this exact same thing. When I'm in high alert and you've just pissed me off and I'm now having a fight with you, but now, you know, you've put your weapon down or you're no longer a threat, how do I de-escalate? How do I bring myself down? This is the same piece that, you know, asking people questions, getting them to think so that they have to change gears. It's not amygdala driven anymore. You're kind of using another part of the brain. So using, understanding the neuroscience of how we react and why we're in that state, how we use that to change that state, change that focus is such a key piece. You know, again, focus comes into it, but it's around, I mean, Stephen Covey talks about creating the space between how you feel and how you act, the same applies in, in, in this instance around whether you're counting to 10, whether you're, you know, using who's around you. That's the thing I, I hated about the, the Floyd thing in America was it was, yes, that officer did the wrong thing, but what were the other three, four officers doing? Why, why weren't they saying, hey, Dave, get off this bloke, you know, um, he, he's, he's no longer a threat? And, and, and so, you know, when I used to run programs with the police, this is the stuff we would talk about, how if I can see that my partner's, overstepping the mark i need to grab him and say hey i'll take over let's deal with it. And, and you kind of work as a team so you know th there's all those things that, that come into the equation around de-escalating what's happening here we all have these emotions we're humans that's part of it right but it's developed there to keep us out of harm's way but when we keep dragging ourselves back in there that's when it becomes such an issue in terms of patterns and, and that kind of stuff so i use the neuroscience side to then put it into a practical example so people can kind of put the two together and go, oh, okay, I understand that. Yes, and I think that's that's a very valuable part of it. And, uh, yeah, I think it, it's hard. It I, I think speaking of the Floyd thing or even the riots yesterday in the Capitol, uh, <laughs> people, people don't uh, – I think the general public has no idea what happens to uh, the regular person's uh, mind when they're escalated and what they're capable of, and they don't understand why. So we just kind of label everybody. Uh, we, yeah. we, we make up a story about it based on our human cultural history, which is actually mostly inaccurate. Uh, uh, usually it's a, an assumption because we, ha we haven't talked to that person. We don't know their motivations, uh, wh whoever it is and whatever is going on or whatever the motivation is. And then, um, we find that uh, I think I think learning about the science of escalation would be helpful not only for all the police but anyone who's going out, anyone who's going out and protesting and learning. You can get caught up, you know, in those in the in this and and really make some poor decisions. I mean, people always wonder about domestic violence. You know, why don't the people just why doesn't the person just leave the abuser? And they don't know about trauma bonding and and how. Um, and and how you're when you get escalated and the you, you get taken over. Now it doesn't doesn't none of this gets rid of responsibility for behaviors and actions. What we're talking about is learning about how the brain works in the nervous system. And when you get escalated, you will not make good decisions. Here's and this is part of it. Uh, I was talking about this the other day. Is that your prefrontal cortex up here in the front part of your brain? 
starts to shut down because your body is perceiving a threat. Even if it doesn't matter if it's a real threat, like somebody's pointing a gun at me, or if it's a perceived threat, meaning that that guy looks intimidating to me over there. Your body, your nervous system may react very similarly depending on your background and your training and your uh, and your learning. So it can't differentiate. It's just trying to keep you alive. And that will escalate us into fight, flight, freeze, fawn, collapse are the two I like to add on there. Um, and in some cases, if they add to fight, now we've got violence. If it adds to flight, I mean, maybe that's for the best. I don't know. Fight, flight, you know, fr- freezing is not good either if, if it's an actual threat, you know, but these, these are unconscious things that happen to us. Um, and de-escalation is such a key point. So in domestic violence, these, these terrible things happen. And I'm like, these people, you know, they're responsible for their actions in this violence. Um, but we have to understand, I think people just don't understand. So they say that person's evil. I say, well, that person repeatedly didn't get help they needed. They didn't take responsibility for their actions. They didn't have small penalties for when they did um, small things. And therefore, now we have them having a giant penalty because they did a giant bad thing. And that's the hard part about, I guess, police work and society in general is how do we hold each other as people accountable at a low, small level, maybe starting when we're kids with with some sort of, uh, you know, so that it's a little bit more fair you know, with it, with how we're treated based on behaviors, not based on how you look or based on uh, how good of a talker you are or how much money your parents have or who you know, you know, uh, if we can hold people accountably and fairly, uh, some of these later crimes and later violence acts and, and wild things that happen, um, not all of it, but some of it can be prevented. And I think that's why I'm really excited about your educational programs and, and the books and the information. The hard part is you can't force people to, to learn this stuff and you can't force nah. them to, to accept it either. Even if it's, even if, uh, this is the latest science we've learned, you know, that it's up to us to, it's up to our responsibility, human responsibility. So. Yeah, look, you hit the nail on the head around the domestic violence. I was talking, uh, I was talking, so I was reading something about, um, you know, the the profile of people who tend to be domestic violence victims, uh, as well as as the domestic violence perpetrators. So again, if you if you focus on the two things that I mentioned, which is the fight or flight. So if someone's um, a bit more of a timid person. They easily more easily dominated because they won't have the conversation. They won't have that calibration piece. So I'm I'm just going to use it as a broad example. It's not intended to be just that. But if you've got a a woman who's who's very timid, highly anxious, um, her self esteem may not be at the highest level and that kind of stuff. And to your point around why don't they leave? And I've spoken to heaps of um, domestic violence victims over the years as a cop and then also dealing with people who've had these issues later as well. And, you know, one of the the, the fear factor of A, leaving, sometimes it's also about, and look, when I talk about older people, some of the morals around divorce and stuff is still very, very much an issue. So some of them stay because, you know, there's the the shaming of being in a divorce and not having a husband and all that stuff coming to the equation. So, again, fear fa- factor in someone's head has a massive effect. And like you said, it shuts down your, 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 the part that can come up with solutions to get out of this 
um, you know, the, the brain part that's that's doing those solutions and problem solving is not at its best because you're scared all the time. So there's a number of things that, that that come into it. But again, if we rewind and say, well, if we've got robust, and it comes out of that calibration, you talked about little penalties along the way. If I'm a kid who's highly aggressive because my parents are that way, and that's what I've learned now, I come to school and suddenly, you know, every day we're having a conversation in a group and they go, Clint, every time you've done it again, you know, you pulled little girl's hair over there, she's not happy about it, she's now talking about it, the rest of the group are also saying, yeah, we don't like her when you pull her hair and, you know, going forward and if I was a good teacher facilitating these conversations, I'd be saying, what do we want to do, team, as, as a group, if somebody else is doing stuff that we don't like? Let's encourage you just saying, hey, Johnny or Clint, you shouldn't be pulling her hair. I don't like that. Now we're calibrating that behaviour. So it's not about a punishment. This is just about the group doesn't like me because this kid, when you think about it as a bully, like I say, a lot of them have their own trauma and their own things to do with. They don't want to be um, outside of the group either. They want to be part of the group. They get encouraged by people laughing when they tip, you know, pick on someone else. And so you're, you're changing the way they're being influenced by the group, you're using the group to calibrate, but you're also encouraging talk, you're encouraging some courageousness to actually have the conversation. And the more they do it, the easier it becomes. So, again, it's not sheep station stuff. This isn't the big stuff. This is the little stuff. So if we kind of not whack each other, but we calibrate, then that's not acceptable And, and we all get used to doing that. That kid down the track is probably less likely to be a big bully and start whacking people, you know. He started off a certain way, but people will actually give him feedback. And it doesn't have to be he got punished because then it becomes retribution. They, you know, they went and dobbed on me, um, snitched on me, so now I'm going to get even more angry with them and I'll take out more stuff. This is about, oh, okay, the, the, the whole group doesn't like this stuff. So it does a number of things without being super looking deliberate, it's kind of influencing in the right way, but structuring it. And if people understand that as a facilitator and as teachers, that this is, it doesn't have to be hours and hours of, you know, group sessions. It can be literally 15 minutes of every day where just before we're about to finish for the day, we all get together in the group. We have our, I call it a blue pool conversation where everybody can talk and or fishbowl conversation that I've also used. But, um, you know, where people can talk about what's happened today, what was good, what wasn't so good, who specifically. So they get used to it and people are expecting feedback and people are also encouraged to give feedback. And so we kind of just, it's a very basic, it sounds kind of almost too basic, but when you get to it and you kind of understand the neuroscience stuff that we've talked about, um, how we use that to make things practical that can actually lead to longer-term things, that's that's where, for me, I, I see is what we should be doing and we don't know enough about it. Well, I would say that uh, this more the, it's simple because it works. And uh, one of the biggest things is uh, one of the things I've seen is I'm thinking about the human brain. And we are according to what I've read in science books, we are very related to pod animals, which means we like being in little groups. Um, even if yeah. we like our little space in our group, we like being in little groups. We like being in small groups. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, having these conversations, what happens is we're dispensing of the negative, well, we could call it negative energy. We're giving feedback. We're resolving conflict. We're, we're having a community talk. And I think we're kind of going back to, maybe some of the healthier examples, they were very unhealthy examples too, but some of the healthier (laughs) examples of tribes 
you know, thousands and thousands of years ago in human history where, you know, there was a, a talking circle. And and the talking circle was it was key to the was key to the village and key to the tribe and and the elders would lead it. Um, it reminds me actually I don't know if you've heard of Parker J Palmer have you heard of him? Uh, he's he's an author here in Chicago or uh, in Chicago he's got a center for courage and renewal and what he does is he actually does a program similar to what you're talking about but for adults and it's not completely similar just one of the activities is similar. It's called the Courage to Lead program. And it's for usually a bunch of professionals, and they basically go uh, on these retreats usually in the summer or on the weekends from their job. And they are—it's kind of like those old experience groups from the '70s, except with rules, where you have to establish safety. You have to establish safety, and and then we have we have to make sure everyone goes around and shares their experience of the other people in the group and how they felt through the activities or at the work or at the job. And just like these kids, and they're learning to talk about it, and it's hugely healing, but it's also, I think, even even the people that get a lot of feedback, they're healed by it because oftentimes, um, if you're a person who's a bit of a, maybe you don't even realize you're a bully, maybe you're just kind of, you kind of, you know, prickly towards people and you, and, and you, and people kind of walk on eggshells around you because you're an intimidating person. I feel when I've you know when I've talked to people like this who aren't completely pathological, they want feedback. They want people to say because that means they care. They care about you if you say, "Hey, you know, when you said that, I I I felt like you hurt my feelings because when you said that, it made me feel like this." And I, what were you trying to say here? They want that, and they go, "Oh, gee, did I come off like that?" Because they're probably just like you said, following the programming of whoever they were raised by or whatever. Influence them, and they they're just in their pattern, right? So we need to disrupt each other's patterns. We all fall into these bad habits and bad hab. Well, we'll call them bad habits, unhealthy habits, unhealthy patterns in our lives. And uh, if we if, if to get out of our own minds into the community mind is very important. And I think that's something that social media can both help help with and hurt, depending on how we use it. And how COVID has sort of hurt our some of our abilities to meet together and talk because we do not only need feedback but we need a reality check. And I think <laughs> we're now witnessing in the news many examples when people say, "What were yeah. they thinking? What was going on? Why? Why this behavior?" They didn't have yeah. a reality check for how long? How long did yeah. was it till to, to somebody gave them a reality check that wasn't punishment, that wasn't shame, that was just a real thoughtful conversation? I don't know. That's what I, I think. That's what I'm seeing in the culture. So I'm I'm really uh, enthused by your by your programs. I think that's great. So oh, you can come you. to the U.S. and do it, but I, I don't have any power over <laughs> here. But uh, we do yeah, have mindful yeah, schools. We have mindful schools. You could hook maybe hook up with them. They do a mindfulness training for kids, but that's not in all schools yet. It's just in. Uh, well-resourced schools. So, I mean, that, that's another thing that, you know, you, there's, a, there's a lot of activity. So I'm writing my second book at the moment, which kind of leads into where, where you're going. Like I'm looking at, we think of physical health, um, you know, we know about nutrition, we know about carbs, we know about doing cardio, weight training, yoga, all the stuff, stretches, blah, 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 blah. But when it comes to mental health or, or just, you know, your mental state, we, we don't really do that. I mean, you know, people go to gyms and have personal trainers and stuff. There's no real proactive model for our mental health. We only use the, oh, if you're in trouble, go to a counsellor. It's all once you already have a problem. There's no 
um, real, hey, how about if we do this, this, and this, and there might be lots of things to do, not everyone's a good runner, not everyone's great at weights, not everyone's, but you can all do healthy physical things for yourself. Well, it's the same with the whole um, mental health stuff. You mentioned mindfulness. Now, mindfulness has amazing um, I'm reading a great book called uh, Bliss Brain at the moment by a guy, his surname's Church, I can't remember his first name, but anyway, Dawson Church. And, you know, he, he talks about the benefits of meditation and what effects it has on the brain and all this stuff, and that's fantastic. So there's one thing you can do. But then, you know, what, why do things like having a dog, in you know, prolong your life? Well, your oxytocin levels go up because you're focusing on this and this is what's happening. So there's all these positive things, chemistry, brain chemistry, going for a run actually does this from a physical perspective, but it also has a mental health benefit for you or going and, and, you know, volunteering and not thinking about yourself does this, this and this. And so for me, it's about really focusing on what are those many, 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 many things that we can do and why do they work? And then the other way, you know, like if your amygdala grows, you actually end up being more fearful or more angry or whatever. So you want to kind of shrink that. How do you deal with that? How do you do those things? So there's there's all this, we want to do less of this and more of this to get to, you know, again, success factors rather than risk factors. And if, if we know what the risk factors are, we can focus on those success factors more. So, you know, that's another way of kind of encouraging people to do stuff. You know, sitting in front of your computer can be fine if you're doing educational stuff, but if you're just, like you say, vegging out and, and not getting anything out of it, 20 hours a week is not that helpful for you, but it can be fantastic if you're reading the right things, listening to our great podcast here and talking about things that are educational. Um, you know, so, you know, there, there's a lot of things as, as parents. I think if we understand enough about this stuff and, and, and at least become inquisitive, you can find your way. You can find things to do that work for you. And so if there's no you know, one size fits all, anything in this space, it's about, you know, your background, what you like doing, what you, you know, people go to art and draw stuff. I'm terrible at drawing, so it's not going to work for me. <laughs> My daughter's very artistic, so it works for her, and she does cross-stitch and all kinds of stuff that I wouldn't even dream of doing. But, you know, there's there's many ways to the top of the mountain, but it's about finding ways to do it. And so for me, it's all about encouraging that, getting people thinking about that at least and going, okay, hey, that makes some sense. You know, I'm, I'm in a bad place right now. Why don't I want to focus on actual solutions? Why do I want to drag myself? I'm in charge and I don't even realise it. I let my subconscious take me back to a bad place because I had a bad event or a bad childhood or whatever. There's many people that... Um, have had trauma, that's the beauty about I read about, you know, people's biographies and stuff, where, you know, they come out the other end better. There's, there's actual, you know, post-traumatic growth that have come out of these people. You know, they write fantastic books and they, they're they inspirational. We hear their stories. And, and when we hear people talk about their stories of how they've come out of it, how they've dealt with it, again, at some point there's a focus where they've gone, you know what, I'm not putting up with this crap anymore, whatever that was. And then they just go, bang, they've switched. And then once they make that switch, it's a blue brain experience. They're now thinking of ways to get out, what they can do differently, you know, educate themselves. Like I say, some people find religion, some people do exercise more, but whatever gets them through is the key part is about whatever makes them switch. So when we're dealing with anybody, it's around not saying, hey, you know, you've got to just forget about your troubles and, and they're just going to disappear. Well, they're not. Things have happened to people. When I dealt with people with PTSD, 
you know, encourage them to say, you've got a pattern here. You had an event that happened. It was horrible, all that stuff. But now you're holding that memory of that event and you're, you're still allowing it to play out the way it probably did or what it could. Sometimes they didn't start thinking about what could have happened. It didn't actually happen. They didn't die. But they go, oh, you know, I thought about it. I could have died. My son wouldn't have a father and blah, blah, blah. And so then that becomes a problem. And then also because sometimes they're males, um, you know, they feel shame by crying and feeling helpless because, you know, they're ex-cops and stuff, big burly blokes, and, and you know, they, they kind of have this persona about themselves. So then the shame of that becomes another problem for them that they're creating. So, you know, you have to kind of explain to them that your neurons are wiring and firing, and every time you think about this stuff, it's doing the same thing and creating that habit. So we've got to change that for you a little bit. So let's focus on this, but let's see if we can change the story as a director of a movie you're now going, okay, cut. I don't like the way that's going. I want to put a red nose on this bloke now. And, you know, when he shoots out, it just goes bang. And it's a, it's a big joke for my brain now. And I'm trying to change that whole thing so that different neurons are wiring and firing. And I'm changing the experience for myself. So when they ex you explain that to them, they kind of get it. But you also have to do some things along the way, like a thoughts diary. By using a thoughts diary, I get them to write it down. They're using analytical work, even though it's minor. It's changing that experience. That uh, that thing's popped in my head. I've got to think about it. I've got to write a couple of lines about it. But now I'm using a different part of the brain. So we're slowly changing those things along the way. And it's no different when we're encouraging kids to try things is just using things and giving them more experiences and stimulation. And obviously that comes from good parenting in general. But, you know, when people have poor role models and not going to do those things, where do we then slot in as a society to help them at school level? And that's kind of where a part of the, the program that I'm doing really kicks in. Right. And so I was, I, I definitely agree with, with that. And I think I'm wondering about your, your book, is your book going to be practical things people can do instead of, I think where we've been stuck, uh, psychology has been stuck for so long in this problem, fix the problem. Right. And now we have positive psychology coming out with uh, Siegelman He's kind of focusing on that. I, I, I'm, I'm more of the, I, you know, like me, I'm, I'm not totally loyal to any field. I just like what works. And I, I do like the trauma therapy just because it like gets things done quickly. And then you can get to more of this talk and positive post-traumatic growth you're talking about. But at the same time, you got to go with what works. So essentially, how do we get people, you know, is this what you're going to do is get people some practical things? Cause you're right. It doesn't matter what method you use necessarily, as long as the focus is there, the guidance is there and the people have an experience of actually doing something that will change the brain. The neuroscience is so simple. Neurons that fire together or wire together, fire together and neurons that fire together, wire together. I mean, it's just, it's, it's both and yeah. it happens. Yeah. So we have more power than we think. But if Absolutely. you've been in a pattern for so long doing the same pattern in your brain, the same pattern in your brain, it doesn't feel physically or emotionally like you can change it. So I, I was just curious, is that what your book's going to be about or somewhat? So, so, so the first book, the one that's out now, Lighting the Blue Flame, that I, I do talk about, well, in the book, because I'm a character in the book, I'm actually talking to each person based on this. So let, let's say I'm talking to the mother. The mother's found the son hanging. That's a bad experience in itself. So her son's dead. She's found him. She's had issues in the past with a previous relationship where she really struggled when her husband left her and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really working with her on how she can change, how she's 
grief is grief. You need to grieve. So a part of the book I really talk to is about how she actually grieves and, and actually celebrates the life that she had with her son and, and, and using those experiences and those as much as those memories are painful, think about the times you had fun with them. Put on music that reminds you of them. You've got to go through a grieving process. So in the book, I, I really put myself as if I'm sitting there with this person and I'm actually dealing with these individuals. And then I also do the same stuff with what I talked about and I touched on the school program. I actually talked to the principal in the book and I, as if I'm explaining how we're going to run this, why are we doing it? So the stuff I talked about just before I, I, I go to that in the book and then and, and, and there's a lot of links in the book, as I said, to more information about the neuropsych stuff and, you know, books that people might want to read. And some of the stuff I talk about in terms of the grief comes from another book on um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Bulletproofing Your Spirit, I think it's called, is the, is the name of the book. And it's about helping people grieve. And there's specific things in there that, that I used and really liked. And I kind of, when I'm talking to this character in the book, I'm talking to her about this stuff and saying, hey, here's this awesome book. Some of the principles of it is this, this, and this. But, you know, not my ideas, just stuff I've read and, and stuff that you might want to try and, and do. And so the, the book's written in that way. The last chapter in the book was something I put on later. It was actually um, very specific around what I talk about, um, you know, being the director of your own story and that kind of stuff. Was I did a few blogs a few years ago when friends of mine were doing awareness, suicide awareness things on Facebook where they were doing push-ups for, to, for awareness. And for me it was like me doing 25 push-ups every day for 25 days or 30 days or whatever it was isn't going to help anybody other than awareness. Awareness is great, but what can we do? So I started doing blogs uh instead and putting in the mind and so you know people sort of said hey you should put them together and make it so I made an ebook which is available for free on my LinkedIn thing anyway if, if, if you want to have a look at it but it also then later on became a chapter the last chapter in the book because I sent it to the publisher my book was being published and I said hey you know people are actually starting to resonate with this ebook of mine do you think I should put it in as part of of the book at the end and so they agreed and so I kind of as a character in the book, I kind of say, okay, the book's finished and say, so, you know, the whole experience kind of did this and then I've written this book, this ebook, which I've put in at the bottom, which is more of a self-help kind of guide. So, yes, there's, there's things, practical things through the book and then there's also this kind of collection of blogs that I've turned into an ebook, which is also part of the book now, um, to, to help people think about these things and, and, and maybe just come up with, you know, things that, that, that work for them but also encourage them to, to try things and, and explore things and maybe find out a bit more. So that's, that, that's where the first book goes. The second book's going to go definitely more not story-related. It won't be around a story. It'll be about instead of that physical health stuff, it's the mental health kind of guide around I'm going to call it Full Mental Jacket is kind of the name of it. So it's it's kind of focusing on how you do it. And, and, and then also involving the, the physical aspects. As you said, if I'm physically healthy and, you know, I'm nimble and all my muscles are great and, you know, I'm less likely to be feeling bad about life, then that also adds to, to that psychological state. So it all intertwined, as you know. You know, we, we talk about them exclusively, but we know they're not. Um, so, yeah it's kind of going to go down that path, but that's probably a year away. I've got a lot of work to do on that space yet. Yeah. Writing a book can be quite an endeavor, I'm sure. Um, yeah. So I, I, I really like, you've got so many things going on. Uh, it's, <laughs> it, 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 I was going to say, you've, I wanted to, you know, talk about 
some of the things uh, that we didn't get to so far, sure. which are, uh, it sounds like you do a lot of keynote speaking as well. And also, is this your podcast or are you just on other people's podcasts? No, I've only been on other people's podcasts. I, I'm thinking about doing one myself this year, but again, finding the time. And, and I know I don't want to do a half-assed job. I'd rather, um, you know, do it right if I'm going to do it. I've, I've explored the idea, but also I understand, I mean, you, you know better than anybody how much time it takes. You know, you do your editing, you do this, you've got to organise it, all that stuff. So I don't have to tell you. It's quite an endeavour, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think for now it's about, look, I'd like to think that, um, you know, obviously if the book goes really well, I can buy more because I, I still work. I don't get paid to obviously do these these kind of interviews and, and that kind of stuff, and, and I don't expect to. But um, it's it's about encouraging the book getting out, and, and the more I do that, I do a lot of consulting work at the moment, which I probably would scale down if I, you know, had, had all the finance that I needed to, to just do what I wanted to do. But, you know, it's a combo of things at the moment, and with COVID it just, I guess it makes it a bit more difficult because I was supposed to be running sessions with teams and being at businesses and being at schools and that, but that didn't happen. So I, I kind of just have to, you know, I have to change my focus. I can't go worrying about what I can't control. So, um, you know, I, I, um, I've gone into a slightly different mode and, yeah, I've picked up some work doing, you know, change management stuff, which I love anyway. But, um, you know, I think going forward, I'd probably scale down some of that and, and then, try and do more of, of this stuff um, and, and really getting out and talking with groups and especially working with the schools. I think that's the key for, for what I want to do long term. Yeah, that's great. I can definitely see you've got some skills as an orator. So I think that the public speaking and, and facilitating the groups and getting people encouraged is definitely a, a big skill of yours. And I can, I, I'm excited to uh, share, I'm going to share a lot of the, the links in the podcast to your book and some of the interviews and uh, your website as well. And I guess, um, you know, we kind of said this in the podcast, which is there's no wrong way to start if you're learning about mental health, as long as you're, you know, you're, you're looking into the science, you're looking into the methods or the, the practices. Um, is there any place that you like to start when, when you, when you've got somebody, just, just a person who's tuning into a podcast, who's just interested in psychology and they're like, how do I start applying this to my life? You know, I, I, I don't have good health care. I, you know, I don't know if I can afford a therapist. Uh, you know, yeah. what do I do here? Do I just listen to podcasts or what's something I can do to start off a little practical here? For me, I think you have to kind of go inside yourself first, ask yourself some questions and be brutal, you know, just you and yourself and I kind of thing. You sit there and you, you just have a bit of a think about going, you know, what's what's great in my life? What's not so great in my life? What would I like to have? So, sometimes, you know, um, we don't think about where we want to get to as a person. So, you know, you, you kind of go, yes, we have goals. Some, some are, you know, getting a better job, getting better educated. But when, when you, you think about you, um, and this is where I really get to with say people who, who are stuck in that timid, highly anxious kind of environment, we really talk about them asking some questions about, well, how do you feel when you're just a yes person? You know, I get heaped on and I'm always the one having to do the work and, and I can't say no. And so a big part of that is about saying, well, do you, and when, when I talk, I show them some some models and and maybe, you know, if people wanted to look at the ebook, like I said, it's free, they can, they can have a look at that. Um, but it really gets them thinking about how does what's happening up here and how I feel 
translate into how I come across, how my behaviour is influenced about that. And so it's about them asking some questions about themselves first because I think once they do that and they realise, you know what, I do want to change some of the. There's very few people that don't want to change something. There's some people that want to change a hell of a lot. They don't want to be this person anymore. They'd love to flick a switch and say, I don't want to be this scared person who's constantly feeling in fear, who's constantly feeling like I have to... Um, you know, and, and a lot of these people pleasers are fantastic people to be around because they make people feel nice. They nurture people. They're, they're very, they've got that kindness and positivity about them. But underneath is that I don't want to do this all the time and I don't want to be treated badly. If, if they're around the right people who aren't taking advantage of them, it can be fantastic. They, they, you know, they don't, if they have an abusive partner or something like that, there's nothing wrong with it. No, there's nothing wrong with being a passive person. It only becomes an issue if you can't deal with it or it becomes detrimental to yourself. And so you're highly anxious rather than just being kind and generous and, and loving. But that can have that effect depending on who's around you. And so, you know, asking those questions is, is certainly the first key to going, am I happy with where things are at? And then again, it's kind of getting them to change that focus and go, well, where is my focus? What am I actually focusing on? Are there things or patterns of how I think that lead me to, you know, worry about stuff that hasn't even happened and may never happen and all that stuff? So, yeah, I think the, the first part is really just getting a feel for yourself. We don't tend to sit down and really think about how we are, how we feel about ourselves really. And so, you know, that, that can be sometimes the first step, holding the old mirror up to the face kind of thing and go, okay, do I like what I see? Is this the person I want to be? What do I want to do as a as a person? I, I kind of did that myself. I, I, used, I think I'm a pretty positive person, but, you know, maybe a year and a half ago um, before the book came out, I was still um, really concerned about even the book coming out because now you're putting scrutiny on yourself. I'm pretty good as a, as a senior manager. I felt comfortable in my own skin. I could run these sessions, all this stuff. But then having this thought of bringing a book out and not working for a company and having that, you know, financial stability um, is scary stuff. And I had to, like, look at myself and go, well, you know, and I'm not a salesperson per se, so that's another thing that I've got to deal with, my own fear and anxiety around I don't want to go out and like, uh, oh, here, you want to buy a book of mine or, you know, that's not my my thing. So it's it's kind of difficult to, um, not difficult, but it's it's something I've got to deal with because it's not something I've had to do all my life and go and sell a product that I've developed. Why would, you know, um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of daunting too. So, again, you ask those questions. I have to say to myself, well, if you're not going to promote the book and you're not going to send emails out to people or cross that, gap where you might get some rejection the fear of rejections a hard thing in, in any space so you know I've had to grapple with that and I'm kind of like I've got you know some feedback from people where I've sent the same link that I'll probably send to you in my first email where they're going you know I don't want this kind of unsolicited stuff and and you kind of go oh that's not the response I want to hear but at the same time I also go you know I've had 16,000 people now on LinkedIn when I started with like two at the start of the last year and, um, you know, I've had a lot of good positive responses, you know, being on on podcasts like yours, talking to other people outside. I'm, I'm meeting with people this week who live nearby who run programs, are interested in it. So, you know, I kind of have to push past that and, and that uncomfortable feeling uh, that I'm getting. I've 
I've kind of come to peace with it. I still don't like it, <laughs> but I've got to push through and, and, and so, you know, practice what I preach a little bit around saying, okay, I, I get it. It's not my, and look, I've had an upbringing as a kid um, where, you know, you get encouraged to look your best all the time. You can't do this. And so you, you kind of don't want any kind of rejection. So um, that, that does sit as part of my background and, I, and I'm aware of it, but um yeah, you gotta 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 have a look at yourself in the mirror and go, right, what do you wanna do? I mean, long term I wanna be able to get in front of more people. I wanna be helping more people and this is the way I, I need to do it. But, you know, if no one knows about Clint Adams, I might have a book that just sits on a shelf in my own house and it's not gonna it's not gonna go anywhere. Well, um a lot of effort went into it, so I might as well go the whole hog with it, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And so I like that you used a personal example uh, in this situation because I think that everyone has their dream and what helps to make meaning. And I see that, you know, you're a person that you've done something for a long time. You've become, you've maybe, you know, gotten to be some level of expertise. Okay, let's see what the next step <laughs> is. And so, and, you know, everyone's got something in their life that they want to change. Uh, whether it's small or large, it doesn't matter. And I do think you're right. Uh, we do have to start being introspective and asking ourselves tough questions. And and I know that, uh, you know, there's new research starting to come out, and I need to figure out where this is, but I was reading the other day uh, in, on, in, a, in an article about how they've been finding that self-talk, actually using your own name and talking to yourself in your head is actually really healthy and actually really helpful if you say, if you're being positive, you know, you're not saying, oh, you, you did this wrong, you know, but like that positive self-talk, the research is now showing that this is like extremely helpful where, um, you know, I don't think I wasn't taught that as a child. I don't know where that, you know, came from. I think I learned it in psychology school, you know, that, okay, let's start having a self-dialogue and a self-reflection here. So I think yeah. uh, I think it's a great advice for people that want to start out is just start asking those questions. And once you have that, then you can move into the plane of possibility because now you know, here's where I'm at and where do I want to be? And then there's a journey. Like you said, you're on your yeah. own journey. I'm excited uh, to promote your book and, uh, and uh, put this podcast all around the world. We do have listeners in Australia. I can see them on the map of downloads. Uh, I have to find out which state they're in. They're they're on all. I we we have um, in all states and one in uh, the the island Tanzania Tanzania Tasmania uh, Tasmania yeah, yeah it's it's right off the yeah. coast there. We have one we have like one download from there, and I was very excited about that. But mostly <laughs> on the mainland anyway near Sydney. But sure. um, uh, I'm excited for people to get your message out around the world, and uh, it's been my pleasure to you know thank have you. you on the show and. Uh, I think you're an inspiration. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm excited to uh, watch your career continue to grow. And um, yeah, it's been it's been great, Clint. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Felt really comfortable. It's good. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Kraus. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe right now or share it with somebody that you think would enjoy this or maybe they need it. I very much appreciate everyone who listens to this podcast. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in. Now for just a few announcements. 
I am still an Emdria consultant, and if you are looking to become EMDR certified, please check out my information below in the show notes. Also, just the disclaimer here, the recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based upon the literature they have read and their experience in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling down, stressed, or overwhelmed? Text Steve, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. If you are in need of counseling, please do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in Grand Rapids, Michigan, at the Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting our website, www.healthforlifegr.com. There you will find their profiles. If you are in the state of Michigan, you can make an appointment with any one of them thanks to telehealth. Also on our website, you can find health articles that we release two to three times a month to deal with current issues of mental health, self-help, and other topics of psychology. We think you might enjoy them. Please stop by today. Also, as you can see in the show notes, I am also doing behavioral health consulting now, and I'm working on the National Violence Prevention Hotline. Due to recent events, I do believe that this is the year that I'm going to be officially putting in for a grant for the National Violence Prevention Hotline. If you'd like to get involved, please click on the link below in the show notes. You will find our website there. Until next time, this has been Paul Kraus. You can get a hold of me Uh, by clicking on my profiles below in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening to The Intentional Clinician, and I'm wishing everyone a safe and peaceful week.